Catholic Conversations on Catholic Spirit Radio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Catholic Conversations on Catholic Spirit Radio. I'm your host, Paul Garcia. Today, it's my pleasure to be discussing one of the most pressing topics concerning Catholics today, the Eucharist. As many of you may or may not know, a National Eucharistic Revival is underway. The National Eucharistic Revival is a movement to restore understanding and devotion to this great mystery here in the United States by helping us renew our worship of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. My guest today is an official preacher of the National Eucharistic Revival, that's his main job, and he is also a fill-in slash part-time assistant at the Cathedral and the Heart of Peoria Parishes, and his name is Father Luke Spanigal. Father, thank you so much for coming on today. Absolutely. Great to be with you. Hey, the pleasure is all ours. This is a very important topic. So although I very briefly summarized what the Eucharistic Revival is, in your own words, what is the, this National Eucharistic Revival, and why is there even a need for it? Absolutely. Yeah, the Eucharistic Revival, it really is an invitation, an invitation to grow closer in union with Jesus truly present in the Eucharist. So we think about, as Catholic people, Jesus present in the Holy Eucharist. It is our greatest treasure. It is our source and summit of our faith, and yet— we also know that there are many people who do not know and understand how great a gift Jesus really is there. We've had some recent statistics that show that there are a lot of people that don't believe or don't understand that Jesus is truly there. Uh, they don't understand what it means to say that Jesus is really, truly, and substantially present in the Holy Eucharist. And certainly in a practical way, you know, coming out of the COVID times, the shutdown times, you know, there's been uh, a lot of people that have not yet found their way back to the Holy Mass. And so there's an opportunity here. I think the bishop saw that, wanted to respond to it, and certainly by highlighting, uh, giving us this time of prayer, this time of focus for our, our most special treasure, it's an invitation. It's a way to come back uh, to see Jesus really there. Mm-hmm. Pew Research uh, had a study not too long ago that showed that 75% of Catholics think that the Eucharist is merely a symbol of Jesus. And of the 40 and under group, that number grows to 80%. This is a bit of a large question here, but how do you think that happened, if I could ask such a bold question? It's a great question. You know, I think there's there's a lot of different things that we could point to. You know, maybe in humility, we could say, we you know, we haven't been really great, maybe at teaching always, uh, that we haven't been consistent Certainly, maybe through our prayer, through our modeling of the faith to our young people, maybe we haven't always shown that we truly believe that Jesus is there, uh, shown that through our reverence, shown that through the way we are speaking. Uh, I think in some ways, maybe also it's a question of priority. Uh, this is something that I've talked with some people about. You know, we, we, and maybe in some ways we've done it to ourselves. You know, we have, you know, the Saturday Vigil Mass. We've got several different Mass times throughout the day, depending on where you live, and maybe because of that, we've invited people into more of a mentality of convenience rather than priority. Uh, if you think about it, um, uh, you know, I have, I have some people that I know who they do the traveling sports teams and they're very good Catholic people. They, they really try to make a priority of getting to mass every weekend. But one of the things they do is they look at the schedule of the tournaments and they look at where they're going to be. And then they choose a mass time that fits with what the tournament schedule is. And so it's a question, you know, uh, what are we communicating to our young people by doing that? You know, we're, yes, we are going to mass, but 
we're making it fit so that we can do what we actually really want to do on Sunday. You know, if, if mm-hmm. that's maybe a mentality for some people. So I think there's a lot of different factors and hopefully one of the fruits of this revival will be uh, a return to the awareness uh, that if Jesus is really there, what does that mean for the priority of our life? What does that mean for our schedule, how we lay out our week? But also what does that mean in terms of how we live our daily life? How do we take advantage of this great gift? How do we grow from it? Uh, How do we show our children uh, through our reverence, through our speaking, what it means to have God truly present in our midst? What are some ways that people could show reverence? Let me rephrase this question, actually. What are some of the suggestions you have heard as being in the position that you're in, in the National Eucharistic Revival? What are some suggestions you've heard as to how we can reestablish, reignite this reverence for the Eucharist, which will hopefully lead to a stronger belief percentage-wise in the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist? Are people even suggesting anything? It's really a great question, and probably one of my favorite things about the revival is that it's not a checklist. It's not a, a series of bullet points that every parish is supposed to hit, but instead it's an invitation, right? It's an invitation to grow. So no matter where people are, you know, if you are already a faithful mass goer, if you're a person who regularly is at prayer and adoration, the invitation is to grow even deeper, even closer in union with Jesus. If you're someone that's maybe been more on the margins or maybe someone who's been hit and miss with mass, this is an invitation to begin again. And so, uh, yeah, really what the bishops have laid out for us is kind of four pillars for the revival. And the first one is personal encounters. So we really want to focus on opportunities to be in the presence of Jesus. So certainly as a priority, that means mass. You know, that's at the forefront Uh, Certainly, it also would mean maybe times of adoration or private prayer, you know, in the church, in front of Jesus, in in the Blessed Sacrament, in the tabernacle. It also might mean maybe setting aside some time for um, retreat days or, you know, uh, days of recollection, uh, uh, times of reflection to to grow. So that personal encounter, that's that first pillar. We want to be in the presence of Jesus and recognize that Jesus is there. And then that leads, I think, to the second pillar, which is really deepening our devotion. And when we realize that God is there in front of us, it makes us want to honor him, to adore him. Uh, one of my favorite quotes I've come across was from, I think it was um, King Louis IX of France, uh, who was known to, to go to daily mass every day. And he would be known to kneel down on the, the hard stone floor of the cathedral, the church there. And some, I'm sure, well-meaning assistant w- um, would try to bring him a cushion and say, you know, mm-hmm. like, you, you know, your highness, you know, kneel on this. And he said, you know, in the mass, Almighty God sacrifices himself. And if God sacrifices himself, then kings should kneel on the floor. And I, I just, I'm always struck by not only maybe that humility, but also that recognition. You know, if we see that God is there, then our response is to kneel. You know, our response is to bow down. Our response is to honor his true presence. And so that that deepening devotion, I think, comes out of realizing who is really there in front of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, from devotion, then we can go into learning, deepening our formation. Uh, you know, to me, that, that's the third pillar, uh, that formation. And that's where maybe we get into things like language. How do we speak about Jesus in the Eucharist? How do we talk about receiving 
Jesus in the Eucharist. Um, you know, sometimes maybe whether it's our pride or, you know, maybe a casualness in our speaking, uh, but you might hear some people say, you know, we're going to take communion instead of receive communion, for example. You know, what is that? Uh, what is the connotation of that um, in terms of uh, how, how we recognize the gift that is there, that, that Jesus is giving himself to us as a gift? So that formation hopefully will help us then to speak better, to model better uh, through our reverence, through, through the way that we talk about Jesus. And then that leads to the fourth pillar, which is the, the sending forth. You know, once we are strengthened in our conviction of who is there, once we grow in that relationship with Jesus— uh, once we recognize how we can best share that gift, uh, then we really purposefully do it. You know, we invite others, invite people back to the Mass, invite people to times of prayer and adoration so that they can encounter Him there. Wonderful personal encounters, devotion, formation, sending forth. These are the four pillars laid out by who? Who suggested these things? Yes, that's, that's right. So those were given to us by the U.S. bishops uh, as part of uh, kind of the, the vision for what this Eucharistic revival is supposed to be. Uh, they really laid out the revival in kind of, th- it's a three-year, uh, three parts. Uh, this first year has been focusing on diocesan-level events uh, from Corpus Christi last year uh, up through this year. Uh, to really focus on uh, as, the, as the bigger church or the church in each area growing together, uh, thinking about how, as a people of God, we can continue to grow. Uh, This next year coming up is the parish year uh, to really work on, focus on growing as a parish, as a parish family, centered around that Sunday Mass, uh, that that weekend Mass that is our our priority, our high point uh, in exercising our faith. And then that third year is really going to focus on the, that individual growth and the prepare, uh, being prepared to, to go forth, uh, that mm-hmm. kind of missionary, that evangelizing mentality. Uh, so the bishops have given us this kind of three-year format that is leading up to the National Eucharistic Congress, uh, which will be in July of 2024. Uh, but in the meantime, yes, um, these, these ongoing opportunities uh, to, to encounter Jesus and then to grow from there. Mm-hmm. Well, I know you mentioned that this is not a checklist type of program here. However, I'd like to hit you with uh, a list of things that I've heard. You know, this is a big deal. What we're talking about is perhaps the most important deal that there is that we could even be talking about. I've talked to a lot of great Catholics uh, leading up to this conversation, and I'd just like to ask you, what do you say to people of all different kinds here that say this? Father Spanigal, it's it's really simple, actually. This is how we get people to truly appreciate the Eucharist for what it is, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. It should start with this. Priests should promote receiving on the tongue while also kneeling if able, genuflecting always, letting the Eucharist dissolve on your tongue rather than chewing on it, not leaving immediately after communion, bringing back altar rails, and doing away with Eucharistic ministers, Also, perhaps the priest should face the tabernacle instead of towards the people, a rather recent change in the grand scheme of things, and also talk about the importance of the Eucharist and what it is and what it is not in homilies. What do you say to that list of suggestions? Yeah, it's it's, it's really a a good list. I I, I would say I have heard and and seen those things as well. You know, people have brought that up in places where I've been, uh, different places where I've given talks or retreats. And I would say it, it, to me, it fits into that, that kind of second pillar where we're talking about devotion. And 
Um, I, I think all those things can be wonderful. You know, I've been in parishes where many of those things have been a part of the customs of the parish and certainly have been well-practiced. We know that many of those devotion, uh, devotional, uh, the ways of honoring Jesus are there in, in our history, uh, certainly in our church history. So I think all of those things can be helpful. I think one of the reasons why, you know, we don't see some kind of a, kind of overarching uh, instruction or, or kind of an overarching directive from the church is that um, we know that there, there's an importance of that personal engagement, uh, that, that each one of us, um, by the encounter of Jesus, will hopefully grow in awareness of what it means that he's there. So I, I think that some of these things, to me, are very natural outcomes of recognizing that Jesus is truly present. Um, one of my priest friends would tell the story about back when he was growing up. Uh, at that time, he did not have much of a faith at all, and he uh, was with some friends who were going to go to a little time of adoration at the parish. And uh, he thought it was a waste of time. Uh, he thought it was it was silly. And he went for the sole purpose of experiencing nothing so that he could mm. make fun of his friends later. And so, um, you know, he, he saw them go in and, you know, they, they knelt down or they were praying in the pews. Uh, he stood there indifferently. That was his plan uh, was to, to experience nothing and to show nothing. And yet he looked up at Jesus in the monstrance and his heart was struck. Uh, he knew inside of his heart that something was happening. That, that what he came to understand was that Jesus was really there. And that at that moment, he looked upon Jesus and Jesus looked at him. And from that moment, something changed. You know, he hit his knees. <laughs> that was his response, you know. And uh, when I, I've heard him talk to people about adoration, to me, the, the power of that personal witness has uh, really been uh, really impressive in terms of how people understand uh, that conversion that happened to him. So I certainly think that, you know, having strong devotional life and, and having these good uh, pious practices of honoring and, and being reverent to Jesus, I think they're wonderful. And I think that in the, in the scheme of maybe how we hope uh, some of these fruits of the revival are going to happen, you know, I think they'll happen, um, in, you know, in families where, you know, a mother or a father are honoring Jesus, you know, in one of these particular ways of reverence, you know, and then the, and those children are instructed in it or when high school friends, you know, stop off to prayer and one of the friends sees the other friends, you know, responding in reverence. Um, but I, I think, in, you know, for uh, what, I, what I think the bishops are hoping for us is that it comes out of that encounter with Jesus. And so it's an invitation. It's not a command. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's, it's an invite to grow, to recognize Jesus there, but not something that is a directive, uh, which... I think uh, some people certainly do well with and, and certainly respond well to. Um, but I think also this time and place in our world, I think a lot of people uh, don't take well to that. You know, we want to figure it out for ourselves. We want to decide for ourselves. We, wanna, we want that experience ourselves. So I think by leaving it a little more open-ended, I think what the bishops have done is maybe given an opportunity where maybe more people can encounter or have that first encounter in a way that's most accessible to them. And then hopefully some of these devotions and references will grow out of that. Hmm. So are any priests going to be incentivized to change how they do anything after this, this three-year thing is complete? 
It's a great question. I, I'm hopeful. Um, one of the things that I have been really privileged to do as part of my, my travels as Eucharistic preacher is to be able to do some special days of recollection uh, just for priests. And I know certainly for myself in one of my own uh, reflections on just what the fruits of this revival have been, for me, it's been a deepening of my own awareness, even in the midst of the Mass. Uh, just how, how do I pray the Mass? How do I model faith and reverence for the people in the Mass? And so, you know, I, personally for myself, I've seen myself maybe slow down just a little bit uh, to make sure that uh, I'm not just trying to um, finish the Mass so that I can get on down the road to the next church and do the next Mass, you know? Mm. Uh, I, think, I think sometimes for priests— you know, uh, who have a busy schedule or who, who have multiple parishes. Uh, sometimes it's easy maybe to fall into that mentality of, um, you know, I got I to gotta finish this time slot so I can get to the next one. And uh, certainly if we think about what it means to stand there at the altar at the place of sacrifice where Almighty God himself sacrifices himself on the altar, uh, to me, there, there's, a, there's an awe and wonder there that I'm hoping the priest will be renewed in as well, um, that, that we ourselves— could be refreshed in amazement, that we could think back to the joy and excitement of once upon a time what our first communion was like, that we could think about those moments of unity and prayer where our hearts were really on fire, where we had this desire to serve God and his people. And that's why we said yes to, to serve him as priests, to think back to the amazement of that first mass of Thanksgiving where, you know, the priest looks down at his hands, holding Jesus truly present in the Eucharist and can say, I cannot believe that Jesus would be doing this in me and through mm -hmm. me. Um, but, to, but to renew that amazement and then to let pour forth from that uh, our love for Jesus, uh, the way we honor him, and then to really be good spiritual fathers for our family, to let them see uh, how we would model that devotion and reverence. Um, I certainly believe it is possible and, and I'm, I'm certainly hopeful that the priest will experience a renewal uh, in that way. Beautiful, beautiful yeah. stuff. We're going to be right back in just a minute. I have some great questions for Father Luke Spanigal. This is Catholic Conversations. I'm your host, Paul Garcia, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Catholic Conversations on Catholic Spirit Radio. Has Catholic Spirit Radio touched you? Maybe it has brought you closer to God or even into the church. Tell us your story. Call or text our listener comment line. If you like, you can remain anonymous. 773 541 if you have a preschool or kindergartner, St. Mary's Catholic School in Bloomington invites you to its open house Thursday, February 9th from 5 to 6.30 p.m. Visit the school to hear about the three- and four-year-old programs, which offers small class sizes, weekly mass, kindergarten Spanish, and lunches prepared on site. Attend our preschool and kindergarten open house February 9th and be entered for a $1,000 tuition credit. Love, live, learn, and serve as Christ taught us. is a way of life at St. Mary's School in Bloomington. stmaryschool.net Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Catholic Conversations. I am your host, Paul Garcia, and I am talking with Father Luke Spanigal about his position and the overall uh, program of the Eucharistic Revival, the National Eucharistic Revival. Father, I'd like to ask you for your personal opinion on something, maybe putting you in the hot seat a little bit here. What do you think about specifically Eucharistic ministers? 
as we discussed a little bit at the beginning of this conversation, uh, that's a relatively new thing in the grand scheme of the Catholic Church, 2,000 years. This is uh, not even a 100 years old, if I understand correctly, Eucharistic, Eucharistic ministers. Before that, it was just the priests, and they were putting the Eucharist on the tongues of everyone who came up for communion. Do you think that that—let me ask you a simple question. You can elaborate on it. Should you go to a Eucharistic minister if you have the option of going to a priest instead for receiving communion? That is is a really great question. I I would say, you know, I've been in really small places where uh, there wasn't really any need for any assistance for communion, uh, where the priest himself was able to distribute communion. I've been in really large places where uh, literally thousands of people at the Mass. And so, uh, you know, in a practical way, uh, maybe there's a, a need or... Uh, at least certainly a, uh, a thought of a need uh, to have some people to help with communion. So, you know, I, I, I don't know the specifics of the liturgical history there, but I do know that uh, there was a, a kind of a practicality um, that we would have assistance with Holy Communion. I think some of it was in places, um, like I described, where you have this, these huge crowds. I think some of it also was in places where there was a desire maybe to have communion under both forms, uh, to be able to offer uh, Jesus are truly present in the sacred host and also in the consecrated chalice as well. And so, and so to have additional assistance uh, for distributing communion. So uh, in places where I've gone where it, it's been very reverent and, and very helpful, I think, I think the people are uh, very well trained. I think they understand very well uh, the service of, of what they do. Uh, certainly, um, as we described previously, I think having you know, our own personal awe and reverence for Jesus there. I, th- I think there's uh, a response that we make even physically. Uh, how, how would we, for example, if we were carrying uh, a vessel uh, with Jesus truly present, how would we carry that vessel? You know, how do we show that that reverence and devotion? So I certainly think uh, it, it's, it's, I've been in places where it's been done really well. Um, you know, uh, the, the question of um, who should who should you approach or whatever, um, that that can be a, a complicated one. You know, I would say maybe someone's own personal faith, if there's something there devotion-wise, uh, maybe that would be something to talk through maybe with their pastor, uh, mm-hmm. certainly uh, to work out uh, for their own spirituality. Um, if, if there was a, a situation maybe where some of the people who were assisting, you know, were distracting or, or were an obstacle or something like that, you know, to me that would be maybe a conversation I would want to have, you know, with the pastor and and. Uh, to, you know, to find out the, the wisdom there, to find out the background, to see if there's maybe a better option, a better solution. Um, so, you know, for me, maybe the the revival is an opportunity for uh, all those uh, who help with distributing communion uh, to refresh, you know, in terms of who we believe is there. But then also, what does that mean? Uh, how are we in practice? How do we model what we believe? Uh, how do we make sure that that Holy Communion, which is really uh, that high point of unity uh, for all those who are able to receive Jesus, uh, to make sure that that is uh, a really holy, reverent, uh, that that's a beautiful moment, uh, that it's not one that's distracted or or somehow um, lessened because uh, we, we have these distractions going on mm-hmm. uh, at that part of the Mass. Some people, a small group of people maybe, intelligent people with long brown hair that are young men named Paul Garcia, might think <laughs> that the Eucharistic minister's being that there are many in maybe a medium-sized church, seeing them handle the Eucharist and just giving it out willy-nilly, or so it seems, uh, that 
might indicate to someone who's new to the faith or maybe not as knowledgeable in the faith, it might make them think that this isn't a big deal. I think there's a lot of people that would agree with me in that, that, well, if they're uh, just handling this, they're giving it to anybody to hand out. It must not be that important. And if everyone's running around and not even dropping to a knee, despite that, I mean, there must not be anything that important up there. No way there's Jesus Christ up there because we'd all fall flat on our faces if that was the case. That's my thinking on it. Am I on to anything with that? Or do you think that's maybe a little conservative, a little rad trad, which means (laughs) radical traditionalist of me? Or am I on to something? Well, I, I certainly think there's something there in terms of recognizing some of the obstacles that have, have been there in the past or that could be there now. So uh, I, I think, you know, for me as a priest, and this is something that I've been t- reflecting on the priest with in, in my uh, priest uh, retreats and conferences, but perhaps there is this uh, kind of mentality of, of casualness, you know, uh, that mm-hmm. we've become so used to what we do that we forget who is really there, that we forget that Jesus is really there. And so uh, that that might be the case, you know, in terms of our reverences. You know, do we ever notice that, you know, our genuflection has become a little bit rushed or a little bit sloppy or, you know, that we, that we aren't, you know, truly taking the time to, to face Jesus truly present? Uh, and I certainly think that could be the case for others, you know, who are involved in the liturgy as well. So um, I, I think that uh, when, the, when that is the situation, to me, that's uh, right at the heart of what, of what we're hoping to do here in this revival. And, you know, I think one of the fruits for me that, that came out of the COVID time, the shutdown time, was certainly in the, in the parishes where I was, you know, there was such a longing for Jesus in the Eucharist. And, and for people that were not able to receive for a while, there was such a longing uh, I, I saw, and we can talk about some of those stories, I saw amazing and beautiful faith from our people. One of the things that I think was a really great fruit that came out of that was that we had a lot less of that mentality of kind of rushing through communion. Uh, there was a lot less of that mentality. You know, we have to finish this so that we can get on, get on with the day or finish the mass so that we can get going. I, I saw a, a greater prayerfulness. I saw a, a greater willingness uh, to really be at, at kind of peace and relaxed. And it was it was one of the reasons why uh, we did not feel like a need to rush back, you know, having extra help in distributing communion because uh, the people were really enjoying the prayerfulness of that time. So I certainly think that that kind of rediscovery, I think is is to me part of the invitation of what we're going through with the revival. I see. You mentioned briefly, and we only have so much time, so I'd like to cover a few different topics, but you said something about wine why have I not been to a single mass in years where wine is even offered? Whatever happened to that? Jesus did say, you must drink my blood. As I, of course, the Eucharist is a body, blood, soul, and divinity. But according to my understanding of things, there was wine for the majority of the Catholic Church's uh, time that they've been doing communion, right? So, yeah, this is this is really a, a great question. And, yeah, certainly one that would be worth, I think, looking into and diving into more. So, uh, the, the idea of being able to receive uh, what we say under both kinds, uh, the consecrated host and the precious blood, the consecrated chalice, um, the, the church tells us is a fuller sign, right? That, that there's both an eating and a drinking there um, that does uh, coincide with, with as you mentioned, the, the command of Jesus to take and eat and, and to drink. And certainly our, our faith believes that Jesus is really, truly and substantially present under either form, uh, even the smallest little particle 
of a host, we believe is truly the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, even the smallest little drop of the precious blood. So uh, now, now why or, or why not, you know, might a parish offer uh, the, the precious blood in uh, having some side chalices available for communion? Uh, I think there's lots of different reasons there. I, I, know, I know one that I often hear is reverence. Uh, so one, especially we, we had talked about before with language, uh, I've noticed this is a big one wherever I am. Uh, a common question people ask me is, yeah, Father, when are we going to bring the wine back? Mm-hmm. And I will often use that as an invitation. I'll say, oh, do, do you mean the precious blood of Jesus? And I know that, um, <laughs> that that's one of those mentalities, right? That it's, it's, it's a great opportunity for learning, right? That, that it's true. When that little glass bottle of wine is on the back table there at the offertory, that is the wine. That is the wine. It comes to the altar. But then after the consecration, you know, from that point, you know, we really should never use that word again, right? We should always just say the consecrated chalice or the precious blood of Jesus. So I do think reverence, I think, is part of it. Uh, sometimes you'll hear things like, um, you know, concerns over um, reverence by um, having spills or, or accidents. Uh, certainly, as, as we were just talking about, in many parishes, offering the precious blood means having additional people to help with communion. Uh, to, to navigate through that. Um, and then I think also in a very practical way, I think part of it um, has come out of this kind of uh, whatever it is, hyper awareness of, of things like health and exposure um, where people mm. are. Um, you know, I've heard wonderful people of faith say things like, you know, if, if, if it's really Jesus, you know, that he's going to take care of us. He's, he's going to keep us from, from ever, ever being sick. Um, but then of course, in a practical way, um, at least in our diocese, we've had a long tradition of, always suspending offering the chalice, um, like during those peak flu seasons, for example, or uh, times like that. So I, I think it's, it's, it's complex. Um, the documents mm-hmm. indicate that, uh, that it's, it's through the wisdom of the local bishop and the pastor as to whether or not it's offered at, at any given parish or any given mass. And so uh, whenever I've written about it or talked about it, I've always encouraged people, if there's a desire there, uh, that's that's a uh, an opportunity for a conversation with the pastor. You know, ha- have we ever thought about, or maybe at one mass, or maybe at you know certain certain times of the year, uh, offering that that opportunity? Uh, I know for many people, um, they have shared with me that it really is um, a very deep and full experience of Jesus truly present in Holy Communion to be able to receive from the chalice. Also, um, at the same time, uh, certainly, uh, you know, I've known many people. Uh, like uh, those who have uh, celiac, uh, for example, who are not able to receive the host. They can only receive from the chalice. And uh, it, it's really a unique um, way for them uh, to, to be able to um, to have some accommodation or to uh, to work through the priest to, so that they can receive communion. Um, so I, I've really seen a, a lot of different um, experiences that people have had of of receiving the chalice or not. And I certainly think that this is the perfect time. This is the perfect time for the questions that you're asking. It's the perfect time to sit down uh, as, as, as a priest with our parish leaders to, to really talk through these things, to work through these things. You know, what are the most helpful ways for us to revive our faith in the Eucharist? What are the most helpful ways for us to deepen our devotion for Jesus truly present? And in any particular parish or, or community, it very well might be, you know, that, yeah, maybe we should start offering the chalice uh, again and, and to let that be part of 
our renewal to let that be part of uh, this opportunity that we have for our people. Mm-hmm. And forgive me, listeners, maybe I should have asked this question prior to all this, but could you give us a clear definition for Catholics and Protestants alike who are going to listen to this and watch this? What exactly is the Eucharist for people that don't know and for people who need a refresher? Put it clearly, if you would. Perfect. Yes, yes. So our Catholic Church belief is that we believe that the Eucharist truly is the very body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. So we say that he is really, truly, substantially present, which means that when you look upon that consecrated host or the consecrated chalice, precious The thing that looks like a wafer if you're uh, not familiar with it. Yes. And we believe after the prayers of the consecration of the altar— that truly is Jesus. So this is this is one of our Catholic vocabulary words. It's transubstantiation. Uh, what it means is that we believe that the substance changes. So as we said before, um, when it's back on that little offering table, you know, down the aisle, uh, the little uh, plate or a little ciborium, the little container of hosts of a little bread, looks like little wafers, or, or the glass uh, bottle or cruet of wine, What we believe happens at the altar by the words of Jesus, by the action of Jesus, the words of the Last Supper, the words that Jesus gave us when he instituted the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. We believe that when those words are said, this is my body, this is my blood, we believe that the bread and wine are are changed, that they become the body and blood of Jesus. And now they still look the same most of the time. Uh, I, I I don't have a percentage on that, but I'm going to guess 99.9% of the time after the consecration, they still look the same. We say the appearances are the same. Now, this is part of our ancient faith. It goes all the way back to the early church. Uh, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, uh, who was one of the first uh, early teachers of the faith, he was teaching people who were becoming members of the church. He said to them, uh, don't be fooled by your senses, right? It might look like bread, but it's not bread. It might taste like bread, but it's not bread. Uh, This is one of those times where we don't believe our senses, uh, only our ears, right? Our ears who hear Jesus say, this is my body. And we trust in that. We believe in that. Um, Now, that can be tough for us because we see what we see. Or maybe we could say we don't see what we don't see, right? It still looks like bread. It still looks like wine. It still tastes the same most of the time. What Jesus has asked of us is for our faith, right? He's asked us to trust in him, to trust in his word. Uh, We could go back to the scriptures, uh, John chapter 6, where Jesus says, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man or drink his blood, you will not have life within you. Uh, We can trust in his word. We know if you you read through John chapter 6, you'll see there's a lot of people there who got upset when he said that. Yeah, they said, are you serious? How, how can he shock you? How yeah. can he give us his flesh to eat? And St. John will say that a lot of people walked away there. And I think it's remarkable. Uh, Jesus does not run after them. He doesn't say, you misunderstood me. He doesn't say, <sighs> I was only speaking symbolic. He doesn't say, come back and let me, let me say it to you in a way that's easier. He actually turns to the apostles and he says to them, do you also want to leave? Is this too much for you also? And then St. Peter has that wonderful response of faith, right? Lord, where else can we go, right? You alone have have uh, the words of eternal life. We believe that, that you're the Holy One of God. And so I think that in particular, I think that shows that Jesus let his word stand. 
Uh, he meant what he meant. The people understood what he meant. Some of them couldn't take it. Some of them walked away. He let his word stand, uh, which to me always is a highlight of the personal freedom that he has given to each of us, right? Uh, he has given us that option, uh, that opportunity to choose and say yes, uh, to, to believe that he's there, to trust in him, to receive the gifts he wants to give us. He's also given us that freedom to walk away. It's one of our most amazing gifts. It's one of the gifts that makes us most like him, but it's also one that comes with a great risk, right? Uh, that, that we could say no, that we, that we could miss uh, this great gift that he wants to give us. I think it's one of the ways that Jesus shows his love for us so much, right? That it, he wants us to say yes. He wants, he wants us to be a relationship of love. You know, when, whenever we have a friendship, um, it, it's only a true friendship if we both freely choose each other, if we both freely choose to love one another. Right. If you, if you force the love, it ceases to be love. You have to be able to freely choose. And then when you choose to love, you have to be willing to accept the possibility that the person will not love you back. That is marriage. You know, that's any relationship. And uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And we're going to be right back in just a few minutes. We're going to talk about, you know, you, you spoke about Father Luke Spanigal. You said that despite the senses not portraying that this is truly the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, it is. However, every once in a while, we have this crazy phenomena where the senses do perceive it as being something other than just a just a host, a piece of bread. You're talking about the Eucharistic miracles, and we're going to talk about that when we come right back. You're listening to Catholic Conversations on Catholic Spirit Radio. You're listening to Catholic Conversations on Catholic Spirit Radio. Has Catholic Spirit Radio touched you? Maybe it has brought you closer to God or even into the church. Tell us your story. Call or text our listener comment line. If you like, you can remain anonymous. 773-541-4159. This is it. The final performances ever in Bloomington, Illinois. This is the last season for the spectacular performances of the American Passion Play, the greatest story ever told. The American Passion Play brings Christian history to life with authentic costumes, elaborate settings, and live animals. There's intrigue, drama, friendship, and as the plot unfolds, betrayal, sorrow, and love. You must see the American Passion Play before its final curtain falls at the Center for the Performing Arts in Bloomington. Viewed by generation after generation, this is theater at its best. Performance dates are March 11, 18, 25, and April 1st, and each performance begins promptly at 1 p.m. Reserve your American Passion Play tickets today by calling 309-829-3903. If you have a preschool or kindergartner, St. Mary's Catholic School in Bloomington invites you to its open house Thursday, February 9th from 5 to 6.30 p.m. Visit the school to hear about the three- and four-year-old programs, which offers small class sizes, weekly mass, kindergarten Spanish, and lunches prepared on site. Attend our preschool and kindergarten open house February 9th and be entered for a $1,000 tuition credit. Love, live, learn, and serve as Christ taught us. It's a way of life at St. Mary's School in Bloomington. stmaryschool.net Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Catholic Conversations on Catholic Spirit Radio. I'm your host, Paul Garcia, and I am talking about a very important subject today. That is the National Eucharistic Revival, and my guest is Father Spanigal. Father, we were just talking about uh, how the senses do not perceive 
the the Eucharist changing, transubstantiating into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, except sometimes that's just not the case, and we're talking about the Eucharistic miracles. And during the break, you said this is one of your most requested topics to talk about uh, in your in your traveling around for this for this revival. So I'd like to ask you, firstly, maybe what is a Eucharistic miracle, and are they legit, or are these kind of folklore? It's a great question. Yeah, so I think that people, I think, have a tremendous interest in the Eucharistic miracles. Uh, what do they mean? Why do they happen? Why do they not happen in, in other cases? And uh, so we know, first of all, we know that miracles um, are special occurrences outside the law of nature, outside the, the typical explanation that we could come up with in our daily living. And in a faith context, miracles are always given as a gift to help bolster our faith, but not replace our faith. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the reasons why, in a practical way, that they don't happen all the time. Uh, Jesus has asked us to have faith in him, to believe in him, to trust in his word. And so because of that, uh, as he says to, to St. Thomas, right, blessed are those who have not seen and still believe, uh, that, that he wants us to trust in his word, but that every now and then he does give us these miracles to help bolster our faith. And in the case of the Eucharistic miracles, I think what they, in a practical way, what they do is they really show us in a physical way what our faith tells us is always true. Our faith tells us that in the consecrated host is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. Although, as we've been saying, typically when we look up at that host on the altar, it just looks the same. But every now and then, there are some of these stories where the host will actually look like human flesh or will actually have uh, the characteristics of human blood. We have uh, some different kinds of miracles. Uh, There are some you asked, uh, you know, are they legit? There are some that have been very rigorously examined by medical professionals. Um, There are some that maybe sound to us maybe more like uh, faith stories that, that maybe are encouraging or inspiring. Uh, but certainly there are some very practical miracles that have stood up to the tests of science. Mm-hmm. Right. And when you said had characteristics of human blood, these things have bled. These not only have they bled, but they've bled in the last hundred years. And not only that, but they have been deeply analyzed for serious amounts of time by world-renowned scientists. And I say this because I read extensively about this at this uh, venue they had at Epiphany Catholic Church here in Normal just a few years ago. I mean, world-renowned scientists looking deeply at the details of this blood and concluding that not only is this really blood and somehow it's inside of this Eucharist in a way that you could not put it into the Eucharist, but it is from the the appropriate atrium or something of the heart in the details of it show that it was under significant distress as well. So it's from the heart of Christ. And not only that, but as far as I can understand, in what I've seen in this this massive gallery at Epiphany, all of these verified Eucharistic miracles have the exact same blood type. Now, I wish I could remember what type it is. I want to say it's A negative. It's the universal recipient, but not the universal donor. Yeah, it's AB actually, yes. AB, um, okay. Yeah, so there are, uh, of course, hundreds and hundreds of miracle stories, and there are a few of them that have been really critically tested by pathologists, oncologists, hematologists, forensic scientists, and in particular, uh, some of the the more famous 
modern miracles ha- have undergone those testings. So uh, the most famous one was from Lanciano, Italy in the 700s. Um, there was a priest who had doubts of faith, whether or not Jesus was truly present. And at that moment, after the consecration, the elevation, the host bled there at the altar. And, and that host has been preserved uh, through history. So that was from the 700s, uh, but still preserved today and still has been uh, very regularly tested uh, throughout time. Uh, another one of the miracles uh, was from Argentina, a very recent time. Uh, actually, several miracles happened there, 1992, 94, 96. Um, those uh, miracles have been examined. Uh, 2006 in Mexico. And then there's a couple other ones, uh, 2009, I think 2013 in Poland. Um, those are the ones that have been most extensively looked at. And what the the medical review has given us is some very consistent findings, and many of those that you just mentioned, that first of all, whenever the host has become a, a true flesh, uh, um, looks like flesh, a human flesh, what they found is that it's part of the heart muscle, the, the myocardium of the heart. Mm. Uh, the, the blood type is consistently AB blood. Uh, the blood also has characteristics of living blood. Uh, in, in a couple of the samples, uh, what they found was that there were still white blood cells present, uh, which I've come to learn only happens for about 15 minutes outside the body in normal situations. Uh, but here you have miracles that happened many years previous and uh, still have that living characteristic of blood. Uh, probably one of my favorite details was, I, I think it was one of the Argentina miracles. It might have been one of the Mexican Mexico ones, but they had a forensic um, scientist look at and, and, and he was not told where the sample came from. Uh, so he was just, uh, they, they brought it to him. Hey, uh, here's the sample. Can you look at it? Can you tell us what? So he looked at it. He said, okay, this is heart muscle. And he said, um, this looks to me like what I see when somebody's been in a car accident. There's really, um, there's been like a really significant impact, a, a blow to the chest or um, that the, the cells actually show this trauma uh, from having been very, very severely uh, beaten or in, in some kind of a, a hard blow. And uh, he said, I, c- I conclude that this person is suffering greatly. And so, of course, then uh, the people who brought the sample noticed that he responded kind of in that present tense is suffering. And so then when they asked about it, he said, yes, this the, the sample is living. I presume you brought this from a living person. And, and then that's when they told him it actually was from a host at a Catholic mass. Uh, he, he was just in the moment. He was just blown away. Uh, just speechless uh, to, con- to consider. I think, uh, to me, uh, seeing that consistency um, from uh, examination to examination, uh, that this is true human flesh, that it is heart muscle, uh, that the blood type is AB blood. Uh, to me, there there is um, a consistency there that is, speaks very powerfully. And um, there's, there's uh, a couple of uh, wonderful books about these examinations where the author would say, to him, as a medical person, as a, as a scientist, uh, he really feels like this is a great confirmation of what the Catholic Church has always taught and believed, that Jesus really is there. And that these miracles, which happen every now and then, but happen in such an amazing way, consistently are showing what our faith tells us is always true. Mm-hmm. And then for people that are wondering about, well, why is this blood? Why does it seem like this person experienced a significant blow or was beaten? And alive still, when when they instituted the Eucharist, when Jesus did, he was at the Last Supper. Uh, why then it, he wasn't being beaten then? Well, it's because the Mass, when the host is 
um, consecrated, it is the sacrifice of the mass, right? Aren't we, rather than being at the Last Supper, are we more so at the foot of the cross, a sacrifice or something? Can you explain that? Because I really don't. I'm, I'm confused. Yes, yes. You are, you are right on what is one of our most important truths. And that is that the Last Supper is the cross, is the mass. Uh, what Jesus has given us in his sacrifice of the cross is the once and for all perfect sacrifice the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He gives of himself so that sins can be forgiven, uh, that that the gates of heaven can be thrown open. Uh, it is the perfect sacrifice of praise and atonement to the Father. And he did that on the cross. He offered himself on the cross, gave himself for us. Wonderful gift. But for us in a practical way, none of us were there. None of us were there that day. Um, even the, the, the oldest among us were not there that day. <laughs> And so how do we take part in the fruits of the cross? How do we receive the fruits of the cross? He's given that to us through the mass. What Jesus did in the mass was he gave us a way of being able to access the cross. And so for us, uh, it's one of our wonderful truths that we believe that Jesus is one and that Jesus is truly present. And so that means that Jesus at the Last Supper is the Jesus on the cross, is the Jesus that's on the altar at Mass in the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. It is one. And these miracles, in some way, I think in a very concrete way, actually really emphasize that truth because uh, the, the it is true human flesh, it is true human blood, it is true living flesh and blood, uh, that Jesus is still there, that Jesus is in our midst, that uh, the trauma of the passion, the suffering that he endured so that our sins could be forgiven, that, that we our hearts could be free, uh, that 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 those uh, offerings uh, that that is truly present in the mass that we take part in that offering the one and for all perfect sacrifice we do that in the mass. Unbelievable! I shouldn't say unbelievable. It's believable, but it <laughs> takes faith. Incredible stuff. I love when science in our Catholic faith coincides so beautifully in these ways. We're winding down. We've got just a few minutes left. I wish we had more time. However, there's a few things I think I should ask you. First of all, what do you think the future of the Catholic Church in the next 10 years is going to look like here in America? Good, bad, the same, more conservative, more modern. What do you think? That's a great question. Um, I, I don't, uh, I could simply say I don't know, but I, I've, I've seen some things that for me give me great hope. Uh, we have, I think, some amazing faith. Um, I had the privilege of working on college campuses for uh, quite a number of years of my priesthood, and I am so edified by the faith I see in our young professionals. You know, some, somebody like yourself who clearly has that gift of faith and that it's, it's going to be growing. Um, you know, the, as we look down the line, our, our leaders who are going to be there in the parishes, those that are going to be uh, helping to, to teach our kids, those are going to be modeling the faith to our kids. I'm very hopeful. Uh, that's one of the things that I was so refreshed by coming out of uh, that, that COVID shutdown time. Uh, I saw people who were kneeling on the ground, tears running down their face because they were so overjoyed that they could receive Jesus in the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, this is, this is not a crisis of faith uh, in every home and heart, right? Uh, there are there are these wonderful places where our faith is truly alive and flourishing. And that, that gives me great hope um, to see families 
uh, that would all be there in church together every Sunday, uh, growing together, uh, that I see them in their home life, continuing to consistently live that faith, to me, gives me great hope for the future. Um, I think we have some unbelievable priests. I, I think the faith of our priests is very strong. Uh, I think these younger generations, these younger guys that are coming through, I think are so solid. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, mm-hmm. again, I think, you know, coming through some really hard times, I think one of the fruits of that is that um, we, be, we become very discerning uh, in, uh, in bringing guys along through the seminary process. And because of that, guys have additional time to grow and deepen their own faith. They have additional preparation, uh, but also um, that time for that conviction of heart to be there. So uh, I, I'm amazingly edified at our young priests. I'm amazingly inspired by our families. And that gives me great hope for the future. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that people like myself, people with families, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, children, even teachers, everyone in positions of authority or anyone at all that's Catholic, what could we do to help the process of changing these numbers of the low belief in the true presence of God and the Eucharist of enhancing our reverence, et cetera, et cetera. What are things that we could do? Is it certain prayers? Is it making sure we raise our children in a certain way? What are some practical tips that you could give us? Great, great. Yeah, I, I certainly would encourage prayer. I think it's, it's so important for us to be praying, especially for our children. Um, I think in a practical way, I, I always encourage parents, do everything you can to protect the innocence of your children. Uh, you know, there, mm. there's so much coming at them now. Um, the children are exposed, you know, to, especially uh, from a moral standpoint, you know, things that, that decades ago, you know, didn't, uh, didn't come across people uh, for many, many years until they were older. Um, I, there's, there's a vulnerability there to our children and, and to really help her protect them, uh, to protect our, our purity. You know, uh, one of the Beatitudes we uh, recently have been uh, reflecting on in, in the liturgy, uh, you know, the, the blessed are the clean of heart for they shall see God. And uh, if you think about uh, being able to have a pure heart helps us to see more clearly, to see as God sees, That's not only one another, but certainly to see God truly present as well. Uh, you know, one of the hard things about sin is that it clouds our mind, it clouds our vision. Uh, the, the more that we're overcome uh, with sin in our lives, the more that pattern of sin is built up in our lives, the harder it is to see. And so I really encourage parents, do everything you can, fight for protecting that purity uh, of our children. Uh, so that they can have that opportunity to really see, uh, to see Jesus there. I think also modeling our faith, you know, really not being self-conscious, uh, but be- being willing, you know, to, to make that genuflection, even if the person standing next to you is not Catholic, mm-hmm. uh, you know, make sure that, that you say that loud amen at communion, you know, uh, be that model of faith. I do believe that Jesus is here. Speak about it, you know, uh, speak about it, you know, in our, in our homes, in our, our families, uh, I think it comes to that that next layer of invitation. You know, if if my life is changed by Jesus truly present, if I'm strengthened to live life in him because he's really there in the Eucharist, if I am more joyful because my heart is becoming more like his through that unity, if I'm more hopeful because I'm strengthened to look towards heaven, that's something that I want to share with people around me. It's something I want to share with people that I love. And so maybe um, stretching ourselves past you know, that comfort zone of, you know, let's not really get into it or let's not ask hard questions or not, let's, let's not, um, you know, go to that, that place that maybe sometimes is uncomfortable. Uh, maybe we have the courage to do that. And we say, you know, my life is changed because of this great gift. And I just want to invite you uh, to experience it also. 
you know, I, I want to invite you to also take part in it. Beautiful. And Father, I thought I was going to cut it off right there. Maybe we'll have to just go one minute past the 17 minute mark here. Why uh, people are going to wonder and they might walk away from this if I don't ask it. Just curious and not knowing. Why do we believe that Christ, although he was present in the Eucharist at the Last Supper, why do we believe he is still present every single time we do Mass anywhere, to celebrate Mass anywhere throughout the world, any time of day? Why do we still think he's there? Did he say he'd still be there every time that we did this in memory of him or what? Yes, yeah. So he he gave us really in the Mass a way that we can always access that true presence, his true, one true perfect sacrifice on the cross. And he really gave that through the gift of the priesthood. Uh, it's one of, one of the charges of the apostles uh, and their successors, the bishops and, and the priests who work with them is to perpetuate the sacrifice of the mass, right? To, to be able to offer that sacrifice, to stand in the person of Christ and to be able to offer that sacrifice, the one sacrifice, so that God's people can be present there, that God's people can receive the fruits. And so, yeah, so we believe that every Mass is the Last Supper. We believe that every Mass is the cross. And that's that happens through the gift of the Holy Priesthood. I see. All right. Well, that was awesome. Great conversation. Thank you for doing what you're doing, Father. It's incredibly important, perhaps the most important thing in our lives right now. True admiration and adoration and belief of what the Eucharist is and knowing what it is not is so crucial to our Catholic faith. It's it's not only crucial, it is the center point of our faith. And I thank you for doing what you do, and I thank you very much for coming on today. It was a really a great conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Great being with you today. Of course. And thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Catholic Conversations on Catholic Spirit Radio. That was Father Spanigal. I'm your host, Paul Garcia. Until next episode, God bless and have a great week. You've been listening to Catholic Conversations. Download our podcasts at catholicspiritradio.com. 